Welcome to the final episode of the Jim Thomas series. In episode four, Jim discussed his transition to the Cobra attack helicopter and his capabilities as well. He also discussed the use of B-52s. In this episode, Jim discusses his decisions that he made during missions late in his tour to help everyone get home safely and his eventual rotation out and post-war career in the military. So at any rate, well, we're going to play these new these next two clips back to back. They just kind of reinforce the role of these ground troops and and how amazing they were. Um, and those those long range uh, patrol guys were that that was some pretty. They were highly trained guys. Yeah, and stuff. Did a lot of hairy stuff. Yeah. Uh, again, they they would try to just observe, but a lot of times they'd get in contact, and that's when again we would go out and put our blues on the ground to meet up with them as a bigger force and uh, help pull them out. A lot of times our blues would get in contact also. And the concept there was they would try to maintain contact with whatever size force it was. And while they were doing that, we would call back and they would they would call in another battalion, like if we supported the 1st of the 8th, uh, which is a battalion-sized infantry. Uh, they'd send a couple of companies out, put them on the ground close, um, walk into our blues, link up with them, and then we would let our blues go back while this larger force continued to contact with the enemy hmm. uh, as a larger force. Because our blues were only to establish contact and until they could be relieved. So we would pull them back out. And like I said, we would put our blues in two or three times a day doing that. Hmm. They'd get in contact, we'd put a bigger unit in, we'd pull them out. They almost never spent overnight. They hated spending overnight because that was their job is just establish contact. Or if they didn't find anything, we'd pull them out, and they never had to spend the night generally. I've been in incredibly impressed at how the tactics for this new type of recon and warfare, yeah. using helicopters, evolved. Yeah. And having all these different units mutually support each other. Oh, yeah. That, that's, um, that must have been, was that comforting for you when oh, you were there and you saw all this? Absolutely. You know, you knew uh, if you went down, you were going to be picked up. It's a big deal. If possible. It's an absolute big deal. Uh, we had a siren in the troop area. If an aircraft went down, that siren went off, and everybody ran to the Hueys. They cranked up, and they were out there in five minutes, en route to the where the downed aircraft was. And they would put the blues on the ground to secure flying, uh, flying my missions. I had a front seat of... Uh, Paul Foti, I told you about, that was killed after I left. He flew my front seat. Uh, Gung-ho, enthusiastic, he was just ready to go, you know, he wanted to just do it. And we'd be flying, we'd be flying these circles around the scout. And it, it would get boring sometimes if the scout wasn't finding anything. And he's up there in the front seat, you know, look, I see him up there like this, looking around, he says, Jim, he says, put the scout over there, have him check this LZ out over here. And I, I said, no. I said, we've got a mission for a, for a, to scout a particular area and do it uh, uh, systematically. And I said, I, can, I, can, I can't be running the scout all over the place to go check out things you see at 1,500 feet. <laughs> and uh, he says, you don't care if we find anything, do you? And I said, no, I don't. No. I said, all I care about is getting you you and myself home and getting that scout home. 
And that's all I care about. If we don't find anything, I could care less. Uh, it didn't bother me a bit that we didn't find anything, and I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about going out and looking for things. It, again, I just wanted two crews to get home, and that's all I was concerned about all day long, is to make sure that scout, that I kept him safe, and of course my front seater and myself, and that's all I was concerned with. Uh, when you got short and you were going home, the Cobras usually made a flyby. If you see these, there's one, two, three, four, five Cobras in formation. They're coming out of a dive. We'd get up to about 3,000 feet and dive toward the flight line and fly over the flight line at about 190. And if you see five Cobras flying at 190 already, it's pretty impressive. That would be awesome. All the, all the enlisted guys would come out and throw smokes, watch you fly over. And when a guy was going home, you'd do that for him. Mm. So after all that, Rhino, he finally gets to go home. This is February of 1971, and less than a year later, the entire unit would be pulled out of Vietnam and sent back to Fort Hood. So was he, think, was, was he under the same guidelines? Basically, you're a year in theater? Yes. Because he got there in February 70, and he's done in February 71. Yep. So, But he said at the very beginning that it was the, uh, what was it, like indefinite, uh, you know, so some guys could sign up for two years, and then he was like a optional indefinite or something like that. Yeah. Um, so he basically he served in theater for one year, but he didn't get out of the military. When he when he left the theater, he was still a pilot, still in the military. Could have been sent back to Vietnam. Okay. But and plus, you know, he had all this training before he got in theater. Obviously, also. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, absolutely. So. Yeah. In this case, he's he's going to go home and stay in the military. We have some some clips we're going to share in a minute. But I'd like to get your impression, Ryan, of what he said about getting the men back alive, about setting the priorities. <laughs> what what were you thinking when you heard that? I was torn yeah. listening to that. I, I, under, I, I can't be in his shoes. I can't possibly know what he felt and his opinion at that point in the war. But, you know, I'm sure there are some people listening to it going, by gosh, you're, you're there to do a job. You need to be a good soldier and go out there and get after it to take it to the enemy. But he was more pragmatic about it. Like, you know what? You know, I just want to get everybody home safe. You know, I, I don't know what side of the coin I fall. I see both sides, <laughs> honestly. Well, I, you know? I, so we can use history as a guide. There's, there's many, many stories we've heard, many books you and I have read where the, anyone who's in a position of authority, they start thinking that way, especially in that clip. Let me put that clip into context. He was close to going home. Sure. He was yeah. a short timer. Don't do and anything he'd seen, stupid. He'd seen a lot of people die. You just, we just heard a clip several before that where the scout he was flying cover for blew up. All three men died instantaneously. Um, and so when I hear that clip, I, I, I think it's the same thing that, that, that you're saying, Ryan, where you got the guy in the, it's almost like the clip encompasses this conflict because you got the guy in the front seat who hasn't been there at long. He's all gung-ho. Exactly He's right. like the little scrappy dog. Come on, Butch. Let's get him, Butch. It's let's go, full Butch. Circle. Come on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah shut up. <laughs> and then you got the you got the you know the old you know grizzled veteran in the back, like you know we got a plan and we're going to stick to it. And if we do it, then we're all going to go home. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I I thought what what I really love about 
interviewing Jim is how open and direct and honest he is. There's nothing phony about him. He tells you exactly how he feels. And in fact, in the the remaining, what, five clips or so that we have, we're going to get political. We're, we're going to dig in a little bit to what his career was like in the military as he he spent basically uh, 20 years in the armed forces. And then after that, he went to work for American Airlines uh, to Chicago for another 19 years. And now he's retired and, and moving to Denver. So they, they you know, he's going to spend time in Germany and Hawaii and Alabama. Um, and you're going to hear some of these particular experiences, but not all of them. But then it's going to go into some of the reunions of PTSD and the politics of it. And having someone like Jim just give you the unvarnished thoughts is, is I think, a real gift. So um, you just heard the going home ceremony. Basically, what they said is they take the, the helicopters and the flight line. They fly them low and fast. They make a bunch of noise. And then the men pop a bunch of like bright red colored smokes, and they throw them on the runway. And it's big celebration. And this goes back to what, what Jim was saying earlier about those men that died. He felt like that they celebrated – or memorialized the men going home more than the men who died in theater. I and mean, so I, it, I think that's because they want to celebrate something they all want to attain. And the, the, the deaths are things that no one really wants to dwell on. Yep. I, I think that's a human condition, my friend. Yeah. So um, let's play the next clip. This is um, one of his, um, some of his post-war experiences. So you um, ended up cycling out of the theater in February? February of 71. 71. And yeah. so what, what happened after that? I went to uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama as an instructor. Yep. Uh, I started off in the OH sixes. Get back in scouts. <laughs> Love them so much. <laughs> so I instructed in a, in a course, transition course for OH sixes. Uh, you went back to college. Yeah, I went, I went back to night school, went to Troy State University and got my degree. And by then, my sister was born. Yeah. No. So now he has two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I finished my degree in business just because I, I had to get a degree. Uh, so I did, that took me two and a half years going to night school. But uh, So I finished that up. I was an instructor there in OH6s and UH1s also uh, for three and a half years. And believe it or not, guys that had been there longer than I, that was uh, 71 to 70, 71, 2, 3, 73. Guys ahead of me were getting orders to go back to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So I started worrying about getting orders to go back. Because once again, I, I didn't think my survival chances were that. Again, I was still thinking, I'm not going to survive if I go back. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, I, I didn't. It just didn't happen. It wound down enough, you know, by 73, 74, they were winding, they were pulling troops. To me, it seems like an incredibly amazing resource when you have someone like you yeah. come back and help instruct people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so was there an appreciation from the people you were training that, hey, this guy's been there, I need to listen to him? Um, all of us, all the IPs were in Vietnam, came, came home from Vietnam, and we, we taught courses we didn't teach initial entry courses. In other words, the guy in the warrant officer flight training program, we didn't teach those. Uh, the, the military instructors that I had when I went through, yeah, they, they were awesome. 
Uh, I enjoyed talking with them and flying with them, and they could teach you a lot. Uh, of course, everybody we instructed uh, knew the experience we had, and uh, they appreciated that. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. How long did you stay in the service? Twenty years. So what? Uh, where did your career path take you after Vietnam? I spent three and a half years at Rucker IPM, and then I went to Iraq. Uh, I spent a short tour. After being in a stateside tour for three and a half, four years, you were due to go on a short tour, unaccompanied. Usually it was Korea. I had a friend of mine that was in Iran as an instructor, and he said, Jim, if you got to go on a short tour, come over to Iran, because it was a year tour. A short tour is a year. Yeah, that's a short tour. <laughs> it was a hardship tour, what they call it, and it was unaccompanied. You couldn't take the, I went to Esfahan, which is south of Tehran. Couldn't take your family. We were in Georgia. Yeah, you went to Georgia. And I was an advisor to the Iranian Army. I instructed, I trained their pilots. And I trained in all three aircraft that they had. And they had OH-58s, which is the uh, Bell, Bell 206, Jet Ranger. And I instructed in Hueys, and they had the J-Model Cobras, which is a twin-engine Cobra. And I instructed in those also. Uh, so I, I spent a year there. So you were there, what, five years or so before the Iranian Revolution? Yeah, 74 and 5, I was in around the Shah fell in 79. Yeah. So yeah, he was fully in power, uh, very secure. Pilots were great to work with, other than having trouble with English sometimes, and they all had to speak English, because that's the universal aviation language. Uh, and, the, and the culture is obviously different, uh, but it was extremely interesting. So I spent a year in Iran, instructing them. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that have spent time in Iran when it was, you know, basically a, a Persian monarchy that harkened back from whatever century you want to pick towards before it became this Islamic theocratic state that it is now. Yeah, it seems like it's been forever that Iran has been the way it is now. You know, yeah. but uh, but you're right. Yeah, in the in the late '70s, you had the revolution, and um, you know, I remember. I mean, I was think I was 10 years old when that stuff was happening, and, and I still remember it being on TV. I remember our attempt to rescue the hostages that went horribly wrong, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And you know, it was, uh, you know, and of course there was the, uh, you know, all the issues with you know fuel prices back then. That was earlier on and stuff like that, but. Yeah, not a fun, not a fun period in the seventies, really. No, it was you know? it was it was terrible, man. You had stagflation. You had a weakened United States. You had just disco. Been, <laughs> I'm not. Is there any type of music <laughs> that personifies the depth of of malaise and dysfunction more than disco? <laughs> well, my wife would disagree with you. She likes so, disco. Her mom so likes disco. I don't I mean, get it. It's a girl thing. You know, I'm more into, you know, the the rock stuff from the study because there was some great album-oriented rock back then. That was when the musicians and the bands were real bands. I mean, they were fantastic. Anyway, I digress. No, no, hey, topic. man, they're, they're the experimenting 70s, you know? with, dip, yeah, the 70s, <laughs> I and mean, they've made some good music. But I'm not going to go into anything about the Iranian Revolution with the exception of, unless you want to, but there's just one thing that I wanted to to share with the audience because I thought it was kind of interesting. So we did a series, it just, it ended the series before this one with Marta Warner and Marta Warner is a, um, uh, she's still alive, but she's what, 91. 
she was a young girl in Nazi Germany uh, during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. She was a member of the Hitler Youth and describes what it was like to see the Nazi state initially take over incrementally and then very rapidly after what was called the Reichstag fire. And basically what happened at the Reichstag fire is their Capitol building caught on fire and uh, the communists were blamed for it, which was an opposing political force at the time. And the Nazis used that and the, the communists as a scapegoat to not only blame them and push them out of power, but also to pass laws that gave more power to the state than ever before. And so you could argue, and we do in that series, that a fire is what catapulted the Nazi regime into an autocratic state. Well, here's what I learned about the Islam, the Islamic revolution in Iran. The Shah was basically one of many dynasties that were Persian in nature. They were monarchs. He was the Shah, the king. And he was uh, struggling with these left-wing Islamic fundamentalist movements that were run by the likes of the Ayatollah Khomeini. There was a fire in 1978 at a cinema called the Cinema Rex. There was about 600 people in this building, and they were watching the movie that had come out in 1978 called The Deer Hunter. Hmm. Great movie about Vietnam, by the way. See how I tied that in? And so what had happened was a group of men went outside the cinema, locked the doors, bound them shut, poured gasoline on it, lit the thing on fire, and 470-some people died in this fire. It was considered, up until that time, the worst act of terrorism on record. Now, of course, that would be superseded later, and the same sort of thing happened. The, uh, the Islamic fundamentalists blamed the, uh, the, the, the Shah's police force, and the Shah blamed the Islamic fundamentalists, and that fire and the blame over who did it created an uproar and kicked off the revolution. It's literally in several online resources seen as the tipping point for the revolution. A fire. A freaking fire. I mean... It's, it's, it's really, it's not the fire that did it. It was the fake news afterwards, right? Mm. It was right. the ability to say, we had a disaster. Someone's at fault. They need to be punished. And oh my gosh, it's these dirty communists or it's these dirty Islamists or, or the, the police force for the Shah that, that prompted people into action. I mean, what do you think would have hypothetically would have happened on June 6th if not just that had happened? But if someone started a fire and burned our Capitol building to the ground. Are you talking about January 6th? I'm sorry. Thank you. January okay. 6th. Because June 6th has a different meaning for me. Than yeah, January no, you're 6th. absolutely right. That's like the D-Day <laughs> celebration. So, yes. so thank yeah. you. January 6th. I mean, to me, that seems like the closest that the United States, you know, could point to something that's 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 close to something like that. So Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the... There was also, you know, the 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 Romanovs. You know, uh, the Tsar Nicholas was overthrown in like 1917, and was uh, that ushered in, you know, Lenin and and the full on communist party, you know, taking over Russia. It wasn't due necessarily to an event 
but you know, a, a lot of these things, you know, the way these things happen, it's never, it's, it's dirty. It's not clean. It's, it's bloody. It's horrible. Um, but it's these really quick yeah. lightning changes that happen overnight. And all of a sudden the switch gets flipped Yes, and the power, the power sweeps in and they take over. Sometimes it's due to uh, the groundwork being laid, for instance, in Nazi, Ger- Nazi Germany by the controls over the population that get to a point that they can do something like, you know, the Reichstag fire to just flip the switch. And it's a turnkey thing, you know. Um, uh, so it, I did not know that about the Iranian revolution, that it was no. a very similar way of exacting control over them through one incident. Yeah. Uh, the, the Cinema Rex fire, a movie theater caught on fire. And from what I've read to this date, they still don't know exactly who set the fire. Huh. They don't know. But what we do know Same with the Reichstag, it, right? I mean, they don't know exactly. who set the Reichstag fire, but that's but it was it was blamed on the communists. So Absolutely. And so yeah. I was just the the parallels behind the two regimes that flipped from one to basically from one autocratic state to another one with respect to I, Iran, and then from a representative republic to an autocracy in Germany over a fire in the aftermath of ascribing blame to it, I thought the parallels were were amazing. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> so what we're going to do now is we're going to play some more clips about some of the things that he experienced in post-war life um, that kind of sound a little similar to some of the things he experienced in Vietnam. Did you have any close calls as an airline pilot? An American? Yeah. No. Thank God. Because mm. we, we, we fly those, so <laughs> I don't fly in them. He did go back to instructing in helicopters and had an engine failure. Yeah. Oh, oh. After retired from uh, American. After, well, no, that was while I was still working for oh, American. Were you? I okay. went out to the local airport because I wanted to rent a helicopter. Just take my wife. My wife's never been in a helicopter. I to take I've a, never been in a helicopter. Yeah, I wanted to take I mean, her. I've sat in them, but no. never, never left the ground. We could never take them, but I wanted to take her, so I went and asked if I could rent one. He said, no, we don't rent. You can't rent a helicopter. He said, but we need an instructor to work part-time to fill in on weekends for our guys. We're working too many hours. And I, I said, fine. I, I got my IP rating current, mm-hmm. and I worked part-time for him, instructing in the Schweitzer, which was a trainer that we used in the army. Uh, so I was instructed in that, and one day I had an engine failure in that. <laughs> Did you just walk away and be done with this? <laughs> well, I was teaching the guy how to do auto rotation. <laughs> how to crash land. <laughs> and I was doing simulated engine failures, and I'm over a big open field. I was made sure we were in open field, and I said, I'm going to do the first simulated engine failures. <laughs> And he said, okay. So I rolled the throttle off, put the collective down, you start your auto rotation, you check your you check your engine RPM and your rotor RPM, the two things you check. Well, engine RPM was just kept going down. And I told him, I said, uh, we're taking this all the way to the ground. And I said, the engine quit. And he looks at me and he says, can't you restart? <laughs> and we were only at 1,000 feet. And once again, by the time he says, can you restart it, we're probably at 400 feet. <laughs> So, nope. once, so once again, I just auto rotated, make a good landing, no damage whatsoever. We got out, just like in your car, you know, you turn, pick up the hood and look at it. I made sure there was no. Uh, Put your thumb out. Uh, I made sure there was no oil or something, nothing obvious, and there wasn't. 
And I said, well, you got two choices. I said, we can try to start it back up. And I said, and if it starts, I'll fly it back. And you can either go with me or you can walk over to the house over there and call a cab or whatever. <laughs> My goodness, this guy is like, like Crash Gordon here. I, I mean... Know. The, I mean, honestly, I mean, the, the, the bad luck he has with all these things happening to him, but the good luck he has in really not really being, this was obviously something, I, you know, that he didn't get hurt with, but, but at the same time, I've always wondered, you know, is there a built in fail safe with these helicopters where they just, like he said, they auto rotate down. They just, the blades are still going so they can. They can, they have some control. They don't just like stop and fall out of the sky like a rock. You know, it's amazing that they're able to have the control that they do when they, when they come down like that. But what about, what about the, the guy that's being trained, that's learned how to fly? <laughs> they're, they're being trained on how to crash land. And then he learns, no, we're really going to crash land. And then they crash land. And then Jim says, you know what? I'm just going to start this thing up. And fly her back. Do you want to go with me? So what do you think the guy did, Ryan? Oh, gosh. I'm not going to tell you <laughs> or the audience. He had a choice. He could go to the house and say, I'm going to drive back, or he could fly back in a plane that they just crash landed. Is, or not is a plane, it in the next helicopter. clip? Does it, does it get revealed in the next clip? No. I'm just not going to oh, tell Oh, so you just what. know. It's not in any clips. You just got to tell us. So I have to trust <laughs> you to tell me the answer. Is that how this works? Exactly. A Michigander? I've got to trust a Michigander? Okay. I know, um, Matt. I'm stretching it. <laughs> um, I would say that he did not go back with him. Okay. We'll see. So it is. Is it in one of the clips? No, it's not. I'm not going to tell you. Well, what, the, the, what are you talking about? <laughs> I hate Michigan. Oh, so at any rate, let's move on to the next clip. <laughs> Probably Vietnam is, is what comes, to, what I discuss more, and with our reunions, you know, getting and talking with those guys really brings up more stories and things you forgot. And uh, I met an enlisted guy uh, for the first time a year or two ago. He said, I was in the Huey that pulled you and Cochran out of the water. I said, You're kidding me. He says, Yeah, I was sitting in the Huey pulling you guys out of the water. Because that would have been just as memorable for them as it was oh, for you, right? Absolutely. Well, this is very therapeutic for them, too, because it's like um, my mom's brother, when he came back, nobody, or no, Uncle Ron, uh, right. her, their brother-in-law, uh, he got out of the Army and nobody wanted to hear anything. Don't talk about it. It's over. It's done. And, and those are the guys that just went crazy. They had a hard time with Jess. You know, staying in the military, everybody I worked with, like I said, at Rocker were Vietnam vets. We'd have a party once a month and we'd tell war stories. Yeah. And you sit there and talk with each other about it. And, and here they are 50 years later and still having reunions. Still talking yes. about it. Uh, whereas it if, you, if you came in and just went back on the street and went back to your normal life, uh, that was a tough transition. Uh, when I tried, to, I tried to tell my mom, I said, well, let me tell you about my, me getting shot down. Just, oh, she said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to talk about that. I, you don't want to talk about that. And so I never told her. Hmm. She didn't want to hear it. And I think that's typical of what so many people ran into going back home. The first one I got shot down with, unfortunately, I've never seen again, and he was one that checked out. Uh, he's the one that was shot down numerous times. He was the craziest scout pilot I've ever seen. He seemed invulnerable. I mean, he, 
at least the way I saw him. And he was shut, I don't know how many times he was shut down, but I guess when he went back, uh, he just checked out entirely. And the last I heard, he was a monk in a, in a uh, retreat somewhere. And that's it. Hmm. You know, he just completely checked out. Yeah. Uh, just couldn't accept what he'd done. Because again, scouts had more of a hands-on watching their gunners shoot people. And uh, land, possibly landing at another scout crash. Uh, and, and seeing the result of that, you know. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, right. how, how many times, you know, we, we discovered this in the Bill Parker series with the, the PTS that he suffered from, um, you know, all the way up to age 97, you know, I mean, we, we, everyone listening, I'm sure has probably heard, and you should go listen to the Bill Parker series and the Back to Normandy series with Bill because it touches on PTS and it touches on the healing power of reunions, the healing power of these guys being able to talk about it. You know, it's like a pressure valve, you know, these guys need to get out there with their buddies and talk about these stories so they can, uh, you know, de- you know, depressurize a bit. If you hold it all in over years and years and years, it is not good for you. Obviously it makes guys go crazy. It does. It does. We, we hear this over and over and over. We've never heard anything to the contrary. I have yet to hear a vet say, you know, the more I talked about it, the worse I felt. I've never yeah. heard a vet tell me that. I've heard a vet tell me over and over, the more I talked about it, you know, with 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 people, with other veterans, right? The more we were able to commiserate, go into reunions, go into v- the VA uh, centers, the better I felt. And, right. and that's that's what Jim just told us. I mean, and it's funny because like even like Bill Parker mentioned that when he got back from the war, he tried to talk about it with his, his mom and his dad, they didn't, they didn't want to hear it. I mean, not, they were like, Oh, that's, that's behind you. Let's not dwell on that. Let's look forward, you know, and stuff. Maybe everyone just felt like that it would hurt them too much to dwell on these things or to talk about them. But obviously that was just not the, uh, you know, the, the right thing in hindsight, you can't know it at the time, you know, and our, our society hadn't evolved to be able to handle these things to that point, apparently, you know, um, you yeah. know, there's even psychological, um, you know, papers and studies written about this sort of thing where, uh, you know, it's documented that by sitting down and talking through these experiences, um, it it helps the veteran cope with what has happened, helps them process it, and helps them come to grips with certain things that have, have impacted them. Um, you know, I know there are certain therapy sessions that veterans can go through with psychologists or psychiatrists, and they do that. They, they'll they actually record the veteran talking about their experience. Then they will come back at the next session. They'll go through and listen to the recorded experience, and then they'll go back and they'll revisit these things, and they'll, they'll take these different topics and really dive into them and help the veteran kind of unravel it. That's what's going on with these reunions. You know, you've got guys that know exactly what you've been through. They've been through it too. They were alongside you, (laughs) you know, and who better to talk to than a friend that you trust that's been through that crucible just like you have, you know? Yeah. Patrick, we had Patrick Flynn on, on an air raid edition. 
um, combat engineer, uh, Afghanistan, had PTSD, literally suffered brain trauma from an explosion. Right. And he, he called these chats, they, they call them battle buddies. These, these people yeah. that you're speaking about, Ryan, they're, they're the battle buddies. And, you know, and the, and the issue with, um, with, with the strain of war, it was made even worse in Vietnam. If you look at the World War II generation, they saw some horrific things as well. And it's going to create PTS. But they could come home with the knowledge that they fought, quote unquote, a good war. One that wasn't controversial. But in this next clip, you're going to hear Jim speak about this, this dawning awareness over time, over the controversies of Vietnam and how difficult it was to grapple with. Couple that with some of the traumatic things that he saw, and you, you got kind of a mess on your hands. So go ahead and play this last clip, Ryan. I get asked, I've, I've done some high schools, and kids will ask me, well, what did you think of the, of the Vietnam demonstrators, you know, of them demonstrating? I said, I don't have any ill feeling about that whatsoever. I think, what if they hadn't demonstrated? How long would that, how long, how much longer would that war have gone on if there hadn't been the demonstrations? Because uh, again, it finally came to light, and I, I guess my light bulb didn't come on until I read Nixon's book and McNamara's book and Westmoreland's book to find out how stupid those people were. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to hear a World War II vet come home and, and say that, that, you know, I, I really struggled with why we fought the war and it was dumb and the people who led it were dumb. The people who led us in World War II are in the pantheon of heroes. You know, your Eisenhowers, your Pattons. You know, they got tanks and buildings named after them. Can you, can you think of tanks or buildings or, or anything named after the people who led us in Vietnam? Uh, not offhand, no. No, they're not really part of that pantheon. And it's, it's a real complex issue. My, I mean, my but, take, but why do you think yeah. that is? I mean, do you, th sorry, I was probably, you're probably just getting ready to get to this. I mean, do you think it's because some of the military leadership was, their hands were tied by political, uh, by, you know, by, by administrations? So what, again, this is just from a few books I've read. There's people out there who know more about this than I do. And we, we encourage you to go to our Facebook page and comment on this and so we can share it with the audience. But from what I've read, it was kind of a, a litany of errors. One, we sh didn't ever need to get involved in it because Vietnam wasn't a threat to us. Ho Chi Minh wasn't really a threat. China wasn't going to come down into Vietnam. Um, they reached out to us. We could have created a really strong alliance early on. But, you know, the anti-communist sentiment, sentiment of the time just prevented that from happening. And then you follow that by, uh, you know, going into a situation where you think you can fight a proxy war and you get so frustrated by, you know, the South Vietnamese soldiers not performing or doing the things you want them to do that you just basically what the U S government did is say, get out of our way. We're coming in and we're going to do this. We're going to finish it. And that was Westmoreland coming in in 65, 66, ramping up troop levels. And then you couple that with in Vietnam, having this flawed strategy of a war of attrition, not even considering, you know, the civilian affairs part of it. Uh, there's just, there's just a whole, the, the draft, right? The inequity with that. Um, it, it's, it was, uh, it, 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 
what I what I will say about this, what I what I really like about living in a representative republic where the citizens have a place in it, we're not small, is we can openly and freely discuss these things. We can write books about them. We can go to movies. And not everyone listening to this podcast is going to agree with some of the things that we or Jim has said. But you know what? We can say them because we live in a free society and we can go to things like Vietnam and pick it apart. And I would argue that a lot of the lessons we learned in Vietnam about the over-involvement of certain members in our government and flawed strategies where we were fighting the last war instead of the war we needed to fight. A lot of those lessons have been fixed and, and learned when you look at how we prosecuted the wars in the Middle East, which weren't perfect and had flaws in and of themselves and had political meddling of their own. But at least these were new problems. At least were, at least these weren't like the exact same stupid stuff that that we did uh, like in a prior war. So. I, I just I know my dad. He's a Vietnam vet, and he has struggled with Vietnam his entire life. He's proud that he served in the military, but he struggles sometimes with trying to understand why he was there. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes I have a conversation with him, and it's very clear. It's very lucid. He'll, he'll say things that's like, "Okay, so that's how you felt," and then other times where it's not. And uh, and again, I have a lot of empathy for the Vietnam vets who come back, see these horrific things, and then have to struggle with, did they even need to be there? Were, were, were we wasting lives? Yeah. I, 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 that would be, I, I, you know, I worry that that is what a lot of the veterans from the last 20 years that served in Iraq and Afghanistan are going to end up thinking, yeah. you know, um, and uh, I mean, I've you've heard from an, a lot of parents who lost sons and daughters in Afghanistan, wondering after last year, whenever the way we you know exited Kabul, what their son or daughter you know fought for, what they died for. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to kind of mention uh, was um, Robert McNamara. He was the Secretary of Defense under Lyndon Johnson. And he was an advisor to John F. Kennedy. Uh, and this started, you know, obviously Kennedy is, uh, you know, made the initial, uh, you know, was was part of the, the troop ramp up for, for Vietnam. And then when he got assassinated, Lyndon Johnson came in and inherited that and then took it to a new level, obviously. Yeah. Um, there was a documentary that I watched called The Fog of War. And it's all about Robert McNamara. And what's interesting about it is it's Robert McNamara in his own words near the end of his life. He's had time to look back on all of this stuff. And it's a fascinating documentary. I think it was on HBO. I remember watching it in a hotel room when I was on training class or something. But um, it was fantastic. And uh, I had no idea uh, about, you know, what his story was all about. You know, he start, he was a... Uh, up-and-coming sort of guy at Ford, working at Ford Motor Company. And he got pulled into being uh, an advisor. And he, you know, he was, again, one of these technocrats, one of these guys that would rely on statistics and, and technology and, and the new way of doing things to kind of prosecute a war. Well, what was interesting to me on this documentary, though, was... Uh, they had all of these White House tapes, these all these conversations of Lyndon Johnson with Robert McNamara. And 
uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I had heard, you know, usually when I heard McNamara's name, it was not in the best light, mm-hmm. you know, but I felt like after watching that documentary, he was doing the best he could with who he was working with. And, you know, honestly, it looked like Lyndon Johnson was really the bulldog with Vietnam. And he was really um, in there, you know, berating McNamara on this and that and so on. And McNamara is trying to keep the peace. Um, In the end, you know, when he died, McNamara died just a, a few years after that documentary was made. But it's him in his own words talking about all that. And it's very poignant. And also, I kind of felt a little sorry for the guy. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds bad, but I mean, it, it, I, I think he looks back on things and he probably realizes a lot of mistakes were made, you know, clouded by this judgment or that judgment or what was going on at the time. And you probably look back on things now. You ever done this where you make a decision in the heat of the moment? It made sense then. You know, with all the things swirling around you, it was the right decision to make. But then you look at it later, you're like, what the hell was I thinking? (laughs) Why did that happen? Why did I make that decision? You know, that's kind of what was going on with this sort of thing, you know, and it's the fog of war. That's what the name of the documentary is. It's all about all these things happening, these myriad of things happening and the cauldron of activity that's going on and the repercussions of this one decision versus that one decision, you know, um, I would not ever want to be in that sort of position. It's just, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, with this stuff, you know? Yeah. When you, when you inherit, when you inherit a problem that, you know, (laughs) I mean, again, if you go, if you go back far enough, there's all kinds of these exit ramps that in hindsight, you know, we should have, should have got off and we didn't but it's it's a lot of it's the benefit of hindsight it's really hard to know at the time it precisely is. Hindsight's what the right decision is you know? absolutely right. so here you are you're lyndon b johnson you're the vice president he didn't think you'd be president because you had a young healthy john f kennedy and then he gets assassinated yeah. and you've inherited this war and do you want to be the president that quote unquote lost vietnam that that evacuated our troops that, um, you know, didn't, didn't stick with our allies and that we developed, uh, in South Vietnam, or do you do what he did and say, you know what, I'm going to be that war winning president. I'm going to go in there and we're going to, we're going to create a free society where, and the other thing that I've read a lot about is Vietnam was really tainted by the Korea and the Philippines model. So in the Philippines after world war two, there was this power struggle between the communist regime and what would become more of a representative republic. And the United States was able to play an active role and put someone in a position and support them in such a way that we didn't need troops, that this, this, that, that it worked. Now, the difference is in the Philippines, the person that we got behind was a patriot and charismatic and loved by his people. And so it was easy for people to get behind him. And I think that the United States thought, I don't think, I've read that they could do the same thing. They actually brought in the same team, the same groups from the CIA and the intelligence service to do the same thing in Vietnam. But South Vietnam didn't have those people. If if they did, the United States never identified them. And you had a series of corrupt governments. So, so to me, the other flaw is the idea that we could do a Korea where we can have some sort of 
parallel between north and south and and do that or re you know put lightning in a bottle for what we did in the Philippines and you just couldn't every situation's different yeah. I'll end by saying this Rhino I appreciate Jim spending time with us and sharing his experiences and his unvarnished viewpoint on things and I know that as controversial as Vietnam war is what's not controversial to me is a lot of brave men and women signed up or were drafted and put in a position where they fought for our country, even knowing that back home later in a war, the country wasn't behind them. And they still, mm-hmm. they still did that. In many ways, what the Vietnam soldier had to endure was more virtuous than soldiers in prior wars where they had 100% uh, 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 support from the home front. So for those Vietnam veterans that are out there that could be listening to this, or if you know one in your family, I tip my hat to you. You've honored our country, and I know that I appreciate, and I'm sure Ryan does as well, um, You know the sacrifices you made in a very difficult situation. Yeah, I guess I'll say in closing... Um, you know, another casualty from Vietnam was Lyndon Johnson's pl- political career. You know, at the end of uh, when he would would be able to, you know, obviously he inherited the presidency with Kennedy being assassinated. He served 24 months out of that term. He was elected then in 1964 for another four years. He was constitutionally permitted to seek a second term, so he could have ran. He he could have run again in '68. And he could have, if he had won, he would have served a total of 10 years as president, which was kind of a rare thing. But he decided not to because um, he had been uh, sullied by, you know, soiled by by the Vietnam War and the protests, the 1968 protests, the Democratic Convention and and all this sort of stuff were yet to happen. But, you know, all this stuff kind of came together uh, with the, the unrest that was happening in the country and the way the war was going. And he decided, I mean, to his credit, not to run. You know, I, I mean, I don't know that we have politicians like that anymore that, that are willing to admit for the better of the country, I should not be here in this position. You know, um, so anyway, um, you know, I got. I agree with you, Tony. This was a fantastic interview. Um, I, I'm so thankful. It's funny how these great stories <laughs> pop up out of acquaintances that we know. You yep. know, this was a friend of yours that her yep. father, and the warrior next door. It's all. I mean, it's just. It, it's yep. it's amazing. Everyone's got a story. Everyone has some. Some some are ridiculously crazy. Some some of them are not. And. Um, they're all valuable. They're all interesting. Um, yep. So I, I commend you on doing a great interview. This was excellent listening. Uh, I appreciate it. And we'll say what we said before. Take your phone, turn it around. There's going to be people Absolutely. in your lives who have stories like this. You just don't know it yet, but they're there. There's nothing special about what Ryan and I know or are doing. We've run in these people through serendipity, and they have all this amazing experience and things we can learn from. So Stop um, taking selfies. Start interviewing people. Amen, bro. <laughs> amen. So with that being said, uh, thanks for listening to um, this edition of The Warrior Next Door. I'm Tony Lupo. And I'm Ryan Fairfield. Caca! <laughs> 
This concludes the Jim Thomas series. Thank you everyone for listening and please come back to join us for our next series. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.